0: Welcome, this is Signal. The Strange High House in the Mist by H.P. Lovecraft In the morning, mist comes up from the sea by the cliffs beyond Kingsport. White and feathery, It comes from the deep to its brothers the clouds, full of dreams of dank pastures and caves of Leviathan. And later, in still summer rains on the steep roofs of poets, the clouds scatter bits of those dreams that men shall not live without the rumor of old, strange secrets and wonders that planets tell planets alone in the night. When tales fly thick in the grottoes of Tritons, And conchs in seaweed cities blow wild tunes, learnt from the Elder Ones. When great eager mists flock to heaven laden with lore, And oceanward eyes on the rocks see only the mystic whiteness, As if the cliff's rim were the rim of all earth, And the solemn bells of boys tolled free in the ether of fairy. Now north of Archaea Kingsport, the crags climb lofty and curious, terrace on terrace, till the northernmost hangs in the sky like a grey frozen wind cloud. Alone it is, a bleak point, jutting in limitless space, for there the coast turns sharp where the great Miskatonic pours out of the plains past Arkham, bringing woodland legends, and little quaint memories of New England's hills. The sea folk in Kingsport look up at that cliff as other sea folk look up at the pole star, and time the night's watches by the way it hides or shows the great bear, Cassiopeia, and the dragon. Among them, it is one with the firmament, and truly, it is hidden from them when the mist hides the stars or the sun. Some cliffs they love, as that whose grotesque profile they call Father Neptune, or the pillared steps they term the causeway, but this one they fear because it is so near the sky. The Portuguese sailors, coming in from a voyage, cross themselves when they first see it, and the old Yankees believe it would be a much graver matter than death to climb it, if indeed that were possible. Nevertheless, there is an ancient house on that cliff, and at evening, men see lights in the small paned windows. The ancient house has always been there, and people say one dwells therein who talks with the morning mists that come up from the deep, and perhaps sees singular things oceanward at those times when the cliff's rim becomes the rim of all earth and the solemn boys, tool-free, in the white ether, a fairy. This they tell from hearsay, for that forbidding crag is always unvisited, and the natives dislike train telescopes on it. Summer boarders have, indeed, scanned it with jaunty binoculars, but have never seen more than the grey primeval roof, peaked and shingled, whose eaves came nearly to the grey foundations, and the dim yellow light of those little windows peeking out from under those eaves in the dusk. These summer folk do not believe that the same one has lived in the ancient house for hundreds of years, but cannot prove their heresy to any real Kingsporter. Even the terrible old man who talks to leaden pendulums and bottles buys groceries with centuryed Spanish gold, and keeps stone idols in the yard of his antediluvian cottage on Water Street, can only say these things were the same when his grandfather was a boy, and that must have been inconceivable ages ago, when Belcher, or Sidney, or Pownell, or Bernard was governor of His Majesty's province of the Massachusetts Bay. Then one summer, there came a philosopher to Kingsport. His name was Thomas Olney, and he taught ponderous things in the College of the Narragassett Bay. With stout wife and romping children he came. His eyes were wary at seeing the same things for many years, and thinking the same disciplined thoughts. He looked at the mists from the diadem of Father Neptune and tried to walk into their white world of mystery along the titan steps of the causeway. Morning after morning, he would lie on the cliffs and look over the world's rim at the cryptical ether beyond, listening to spectral bells and the wild cries of what might have been gulls. Then, when the mist would lift and the sea would stand out prosa with the smoke of steamers, he would sigh and descend into town, where he loved to thread the narrow olden lanes up and down hill and study the crazy tottering gables and old pillared doorways which had sheltered so many generations of sturdy sea folk. And he even talked to the terrible old man who was not fond of strangers and was invited into his fearsome archaic cottage where low ceilings and wormy paneling hear the echoes of disquieting soliloquies in the dark small hours. Of course it was inevitable that only should mark the grey unvisited cottage in the sky, on that sinister northward crag which is one with the mists and the firmament. Always over King's Port it hung, and always its mystery sounded in whispers through Kingsport's crooked alleys. The terrible old man wheezed a tale that his father had told him of lightning that shot one night up from that peaked cottage to the clouds of higher heaven, and Granny Orne, whose tiny bell roofed abode on Ship Street, was covered with moss and ivy, croaked over something her grandmother had heard secondhand about shapes, that flapped out of the eastern mists straight into the narrow single door of the unreachable place, for the door was set close to the edge of a crag towards the ocean and glimpsed only from ships at sea. At length, being avid for new strange things and held back neither by Kingsport's fear or the summer boarder's usual indolence, only made a terrible resolve. Despite a conservative training, or because of it, for humdrum lives breed wistful longings of the unknown, he swore a great oath to scale the avoided northern cliff and visit the abnormally antique grey cottage in the sky. Very plausibly, his saner self argued that the place must be tenanted by people who reach it from inland along the easier ridge beside the Miskatonic's estuary. Probably they traded an Arkham, knowing how little Kingsport liked their habitation, or perhaps being unable to climb down the cliff on the Kingsport side. Only walked out along the lesser cliffs to where the Great crag leaped insolently up to consort with the celestial things, and became very sure that no human feet could mount it or descend it on that beetling southern slope. East and north rose thousands of feet vertically from the water, so only the western side, inland towards Arkham, remained. One early morning in August, only set out to find the path to the inaccessible pinnacle. He worked northwest along pleasant back roads, past Hooper's Pond and the old brick powder house where the pastures slope up to the ridge above the Mesocatonic and gave a lovely vista of Arkham's white Georgian steeples across the leagues of river and meadow. Here he found a shady road to Arkham, but no trail at all on the seaward direction he wished. Woods and fields crowded up the high bank of the river's mouth and bore not a sign of man's presence. Not even a stone wall or straying cow, but only tall grass and giant trees and tangles of briars that the first Indian might have seen. As he climbed slowly east, higher and higher above the estuary on his left and nearer and nearer the sea, He found the way growing in difficulty, till he wondered how ever the dwellers in that disliked place managed to reach the world outside, and whether they came often to market in Arkham. Then the trees thinned, and far below him, on his right, he saw the hills and antique roofs and spires of Kingsport. Even Central Hill was a dwarf from this height, and he could just make out the ancient graveyard by the Congressional Hospital, beneath which, rumor said, some terrible caves and burrows lurked. Ahead lay sparse grass and scrub blueberry bushes, and beyond them the naked rock of the crag and the thin peak of the dreaded gray cottage. Now the ridge narrowed and only grew dizzy at his loneliness in the sky. South of him, the frightful precipice above Kingsport. North of him, the vertical drop of nearly a mile to the river's mouth. Suddenly a great chasm opened before him, ten feet deep, so that he had to let himself down by his hands and drop to the slanting floor, and then crawl perilously, up the natural defile in the opposite wall. So this was the way the folk of the uncanny house journeyed betwixt earth and sky. When he climbed out of the chasm, a morning mist was gathering, but he clearly saw the lofty and unhallowed cottage ahead, walls as grey as rock, and the high peak standing bold against the milky white of the seaward vapors. And he perceived there was no door on this landward end, but only a couple of small lattice windows with dingy bullseye panes leaded in the 17th century fashion. All around him was cloud and chaos, and he could see nothing below but the whiteness of limitable space. He was alone in the sky with this queer and very disturbing house. And when he sidled around to the front and saw the wall stood flush with the cliff's edge so that the single narrow door was not to be reached save from the empty ether, he felt a distinct terror that the latitude could not wholly explain. And it was very odd that shingles so warm-eaten could survive, or bricks so crumbled still form a standing chimney. As the mist thickened, only crept around to the windows on the north and west and south sides, trying them, but finding them all locked. He was vaguely glad they were locked, because the more he saw of this house, the less he wished to get in. Then a sound halted him. He heard a lock rattle and a bolt shoot, and a long creaking follow, as if a heavy door were slowly and cautiously opened. This was on the oceanward side that he could not see, where the narrow portal opened on blank space thousands of feet in the misty sky above the waves. Then there was a heavy, deliberate tramping in the cottage, and only heard windows opening, first on the north side opposite him, and then on the west just around the corner. Next would come the south windows, under the great low eaves on the side where he stood, and it must be said that he was more than uncomfortable as he thought of the detestable house on one side and the vacancy of the upper air on the other. Then a fumbling came in the nearer casements, and he crept around to the west again, flattening himself against the wall beside the now-opened windows. It was plain the owner had come home, but he had not come from the land, nor from any balloon or airship that could be imagined. Steps sounded again and only edged around to the north, but before he could find a haven, a voice called softly, and he knew he must confront his host. Stuck out of the west window was a great black-bearded face whose eyes shone phosphorescently with the imprint of unheard-of sights. But the voice was gentle and of a quaint olden kind, so that only did not shudder when the brown hand reached out to help him over the sill and into the low room of black oak wainscot and carved tutored finishings. The man was clad in very ancient garments, and had about him an unplaceable nimbus of sea lore and dreams of tall galleons. Only does not recall many of the wonders he was told, or even who he was, but says that he was strange and kindly, and filled with the magic of unfathomed voids of time and space. The small room seemed green with a dim, aqueous light, and only saw that the far windows to the east were not open, but shut against the misty ether with dull, thick panes like the bottoms of old bottles. The bearded host seemed young, but looked out of eyes steeped in elder mysteries. From the tales of marvelous ancient things he related, it must be guessed that the village folk were right in saying he had communed with the mists of the sea and of the clouds of the sky, ever since there was any village to watch, his tack turned dwelling from the plain below. And the day wore on and still only listened to rumours of old times and far places, and heard of how the kings of Atlantis fought with the slippery blasphemes that wriggled out of the rifts in the ocean's floor, and how the pillared and weedy temple of Poseidon is still glimpsed at midnight by lost ships, who know by its sight that they are lost. Years of the Titans were recalled, But the host grew timid when he spoke of the dim first age of chaos, before the gods or even the elder ones were born, and when only the other gods came to dance at the peak of Hathekla, in the stony desert near Uthar, beyond the river Sky. It was at this point, there came a knocking on the door, that ancient door of nail-studded oak. "'beyond which lay the abyss of white cloud. "'Only started in fright, "'but the bearded man motioned him to be still "'and tiptoed to the door to look out through a very small peephole. "'What he saw he did not like, "'so he pressed his fingers to his lips "'and tiptoed around to shut and lock the windows "'before returning to the ancient settee beside his guest.'" then only saw lingering against the translucent squares of each of the dim little windows in succession a queer black outline as the caller moved inquisitively about before leaving, and he was glad his host had not answered the knocking. For there are strange objects in the great abyss, and the seeker of dreams must take care not to stir up or meet the wrong ones. Then the shadows began to gather, first little furtive ones under the table, but then bolder ones in the dark paneled corners. And the bearded man made enigmatical gestures of prayer and lit tall candles in curiously wrought brass candlesticks. Frequently he would glance at the door as if he expected someone. And at length, his glance seemed answered by a singular rapping which must have been followed by some very ancient and secret code. This time, he did not even glance through the peephole, but swung the great oak bar and shot the bolt, unlatching the heavy door and flinging it wide to the stars and the mist. And then the sound of obscure harmonies were floated into that room, from the deep, all the dreams and memories of the Earth's sunken Mighty Ones and the golden flames played about reedy locks so that only was dazzled as he did them homage trident-bearing neptune was there and support of tritons and fantastic nereids and upon dolphin's backs was balanced a vast crenulate shell wherein rode the grey and awful form of primal nodens lord of the great abyss and the conks of the Tridents gave weird blasts, and the Nereids made strange sounds by striking on the grotesque resonant shells of unknown lurkers in black sea caves. The hoary nodens reached forth a wizened hand and helped Only and his host into the vast shell, whereat the conks and the gongs set up a wild and awesome clamor. And out into the limitless ether reeled the fabulous train, the noise of whose shouting was lost in the echoes of thunder. All night in Kingsport they watched that lofty cliff when the storm and the mists gave them glimpses of it. And then towards the small hours, the dim windows went dark and they whispered of dread and disaster. And Only's children and stout wife prayed to the bland proper god of Baptists, and hoped that the traveler would borrow an umbrella and rubbers in case the rain stopped by morning. Then dawn swam dripping and mist-wreathed out of the sea, and the boys told solemn in the vortices of white ether. And then dawn swam dripping and mist-wreathed out of the sea, and the boys told solemn in the vortices of white ether. And at noon, elfin horns rang over the sea as only, dry and light-footed, climbed down from the cliffs to antique Kingsport with the look of far places in his eyes. He could not recall what he had dreamt in the sky-purged hut of that still nameless hermit, or say how he crept down the crag untraversed by other feet nor could he talk of these matters at all, save with the terrible old man, who afterward mumbled queer things in his long white beard, vowing that the man who came down from the crag was not wholly the man who went up. And somewhere under that grey peaked roof, or amidst the inconceivable reaches of that sinister white mist, there lingered still the lost spirit of him, who was Thomas Olney. Ever since that hour, through dull, dragging years of greyness and weariness, the philosopher has laboured and eaten and slept, and done uncomplaining the suitable deeds of a citizen. Not anymore does he long for the magic of farther hills, or sigh for secrets that peer like green reefs from a bottomless sea. The sameness of his days no longer gives him sorrow, and well-disciplined thoughts have grown enough for his imagination. His wife waxes stouter, and his children older and proser, and more useful, and he never fails to smile correctly with pride when the occasion calls for it. In his glance, there is not any restless light, and if he ever listens for solemn bells or far elfin horns, It is only at night when old dreams are wandering. He has never seen Kingsport again, for his family disliked the old houses and complained that the dreams were impossibly bad. They have a trim bungalow now in Bristol Highlands, where no tall crags tower, and the neighborhoods are urban and modern. But in Kingsport, strange tales are abroad, and even the terrible old man admits a thing untold by his grandfather. For now, when the wind sweeps boisterous out of the north, past the high ancient house that is one with the firmament, there is broken, at last, that ominous brooding silence ever before the bane of Kingsport's maritime cotters. And the old folk tell a pleasing voices heard singing there, and of laughter that swells with joys beyond Earth's joys, and say that, that evening, the little low windows are brighter than formerly. They say, too, that a fierce aurora comes oftener to that spot, shining blue in the north with visions of frozen worlds, while the crag and the cottage hang black and fantastic in the wild coruscations, and the mists of the dawn are thicker, and the sailors are not quite sure that the muffled seaward ringing is that of the solemn boys. Worst of all, though, is the shriveling old fears in the hearts of Kingsport's young men, who have grown prone to listening at night to the north wind's faint, distant sounds. They swear no harm or pain can inhabit the high-peaked cottage, for in the new voices, gladness beats, and with them the tinkle of laughter and music. What tales the sea mists bring to that haunted and northernmost pinnacle, they do not know, but they long to extract some hint of the wonders that knock at that cliff-yawning door when the clouds are thickest. And patriarchs dread, least some day one by one, They seek out the inaccessible peak in the sky and learn what centered secrets hide beneath the steep shingled roof that is part of the rocks and the sky and the ancient fears of Kingsport. That those venturesome youths will come back, they do not doubt, but they think the light might be gone from their eyes and the will from their hearts. And they do not wish quaint Kingsport with its climbing lanes and archaic gables, to drag listless down the years, while voice by voice the laughing chorus grows stronger and wilder in that unknown and terrible eerie where the mists and the dreams of mists stop to rest their way from the sea to the skies. They do not wish the souls of their young men to leave the pleasant hearths and gable roofed taverns of old Kingsport, nor do they wish the laughter and song in that high rocky place to grow louder. For as the voice which has come has brought fresh mists from the sea, and from the north fresh lights, so do they say that still other voices bring more mists and more lights, so perhaps the olden gods whose existence they only hint at in whispers for fear of the congregational parson might hear, may come out of the deep from unknown Caddeth in the cold waste, and make their dwelling on the evilly appropriate crag, so close to the gentle hills and valleys of the quiet, simple fisher folk. This they do not wish, for to plain people, things not of earth are unwelcome, and besides the terrible old man often recalls that only said about a knock that the lone dweller feared and the shape seen black and inquisitive against the mist through those queer, translucent windows of leaded bull's eyes. All these things, however, the Elder Ones only may decide. And meanwhile, the morning mist still comes up by that lovely vertiginous peak with the steep ancient house. That gray low-eaved house where none is seen but evening brings furtive lights while the north wind tells of strange revels. White and feathery it comes from the deep to its brothers the clouds, full of dreams of dank pastures and caves of leviathan, and when the tails fly thick in the grottoes of tritons, and the conchs in seaweed cities blow wild tunes learned from the elder ones, then Great eager vapors flock to heaven laden with lore, and Kingsport, nestling uneasy on its lesser cliffs below, that awesome hanging sentinel of rock, sees oceanward only a mystic whiteness, as if the cliff's rim were the rim of all earth, and the solemn bells of the boys, tolled free in the ether of fairy.